Coming up on Harvard Chan This Week in Health, the impact of Obamacare, the new evidence that expanded insurance is leading to improved health for low-income adults, and the power of social entrepreneurship, the idea that small changes can have a big impact. Hello, and welcome to Harvard Chan This Week in Health. It's Friday, August 12th, and I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Levitt. We begin this week with a new study showing the benefits of Obamacare. The research from the Harvard Chan School examined a particular provision of the Affordable Care Act, which expanded Medicaid coverage. The researchers looked at three states. Kentucky, which expanded coverage using traditional public insurance, called Medicaid Managed Care. Arkansas, which used federal funds to buy private coverage for low-income adults and Texas, which did not expand coverage. Researchers surveyed 9,000 low-income adults in these three states, and they found that between 2013 and 2015, the uninsured rate dropped from 42% to 14% in Arkansas, and from 40% to 9% in Kentucky. Texas saw a much smaller change, from 39 to 32%. According to Ben Summers, the study's lead author and an assistant professor of health policy and economics at the Harvard Chan School, people in Kentucky and Arkansas also reported a range of health benefits. In year one, we had seen some big reductions in the uninsured rate in the two expansion states, and we had found some benefits already evident. Um, people with chronic conditions were more likely to get care for those conditions. People were more able to afford their medications. But we didn't see any big changes in utilization or any significant changes in quality uh, prevention or self-reported health. And so now, uh, with an extra year in, more people covered, and people with coverage having more time to get used to their insurance and know how to use it and obtain care, what we find are are really a a range of benefits across the board. We see more people getting outpatient care and less reliance on the emergency department. We see more people getting preventive services. Um, We see that people are not only getting um, more uh, of medications that they can afford, they're also getting more primary care. They're more likely to have a primary care provider. And then these changes where overall people felt the quality of care was better and their health had improved. So the longer the expansions are in effect, we start to see these uh, benefits building. And it's really a a good reminder that we have to have some patience and continue to follow the effects of these changes and not just think that uh, the first year is going to tell us all that there is to know. The key takeaway, says Summers, is that it matters less how states expand Medicaid. And what really matters is that coverage is expanded. He says this is an important message as the Affordable Care Act faces challenges not just at the national level, but at the state level as well. Well, in both of these two expansion states, in Arkansas and Kentucky, there are newly elected governors within the past year who have proposed significant changes to what their states were already doing. Um, And um, to some extent, some of those proposed changes threatened to undermine some of these gains. So for instance, in Kentucky, the new governor, Matt Bevin, has proposed charging premiums uh, to low-income adults to, to get Medicaid, which traditionally is, has been without any, um, you know, without any monthly premium. And that could have a pretty uh, significant impact on enrollment. And if people drop their coverage, obviously they're not going to benefit in a lot of the ways that we're seeing here. So that's already happening even without any change at the federal level. And uh, you know, our, our study, I think, provides evidence to suggest that these states ought to keep doing what they're doing. They've been quite successful 
and there's not uh, any reason to to, uh, to turn back now. At the federal level or the national level, there are other states that haven't expanded that are still considering whether to do so. And I think our study provides good evidence that um, if your state leans towards doing the private coverage option and that's how you want to get it done, um, that seems like it will produce a lot of benefits for low-income adults in those states. If you decide you want to do it with public coverage, that will also do it. But what's clear is that not expanding continues to, to be a missed opportunity in many of these states for, for improving the health care and the health of their low-income populations. So far, more than 30 states and the District of Columbia have chosen to expand Medicaid coverage under Obamacare. In Texas this week, health officials reported the first death of an infant tied to Zika virus. According to officials in Harris County, which is near Houston, the baby girl had a number of birth defects, including microcephaly. Her mother had traveled to Latin America while pregnant, and it's suspected that she became infected during that trip. Meanwhile, in Florida, four new infections have been reported in that Zika outbreak near Miami. That brings the total number of cases to 21. In response to the outbreak, Florida Governor Rick Scott called on Congress to come back into session to resolve the lingering stalemate over Zika funding. High blood pressure is on the rise in low- and middle-income countries. That's according to a new study from Tulane University. Researchers there found that in 2010, more than 30% of people around the world suffered from high blood pressure, or hypertension, and the rate increased by about 8% in low- and middle-income countries between 2000 and 2010. Researchers say high blood pressure is now more common in developing nations than in wealthier ones. One potential reason for the spike? Increasing urbanization in low- and middle-income countries. Urban diets are higher in sodium, fat, and calories, which can all contribute to high blood pressure. Researchers say urban environments are also more stressful. Finally in this episode, what is the best way to make a positive impact on the world? It's a big question and one that's being asked and answered more frequently thanks to the field of social entrepreneurship. So what is that? Well, think of it as using a business mentality to tackle important social, environmental, and health issues, such as poverty or hunger. The act of solving social challenges and meeting social needs in a way that is effective, scalable or replicable, and financially viable. So those are the three criteria that I always look to. That's Teresa Shaheen, who is a research associate at the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the Harvard Chan School, where she leads the Social Entrepreneurship Program. We spoke to her remotely from Lebanon, where she's currently doing fieldwork. Shaheen recently released a textbook, Introduction to Social Entrepreneurship, which provides a blueprint for a comprehensive approach to addressing challenges on a large scale and a small scale. She says much of the work of social entrepreneurship begins by asking why and questioning assumptions. She told us the story of Albina Ruiz, who moved from a small town in Peru to the capital of Lima and was shocked by the trash in the streets. And when she got to Lima, she was totally shocked by mountains of garbage everywhere, especially in the high poverty areas and slums. And so she started asking why the government or the municipality does not pick up trash in the slums and found all these answers that didn't satisfy her, like they physically can't get there because the roads aren't wide enough or the slum dwellers aren't paying taxes and all these barriers that she felt she could break down. But Shaheen says that the solution was actually remarkably simple. So she basically went to the source of the problem, to the trash itself, 
and found that there were already people there processing it in some shape or form, which they were referred to back then as waste pickers. So these are literally people living in poverty who go to the land side, uh, you know, landfills, and literally dig through the trash in a way that's very harmful to them. And she felt that these people were the resource and the solution, and that what she could do and what she could add was simply to help organize them and to mobilize resources so that they could aggregate materials they were processing from the waste that they were collecting uh, and sell it directly to the recyclers instead of having to sell it every day to a middle person. And she also formed the connection between the waste pickers, who are now called recyclers and service providers, and the municipality, who now actually pays them to provide the service. Shaheen says that Ruiz's story illustrates something important about social entrepreneurs. They're often not the source of the solution. Instead, they're the ones who are connecting others with the expertise and the skills to affect change. And Shaheen says this can take many forms, from the grassroots effort of someone like Albina Ruiz to a large company realizing that its employees can make an impact in their community. If you'd like to learn more about Shaheen's work, just head to our website, hsph.me slash thisweekinhealth. And that's all for this week's episode of Harvard Chan This Week in Health. I'm Amy Montemiro. And I'm Noah Lovett. And a reminder, you can always find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher.